0: video store i am sam mulberry today we are talking about the 1979 film apocalypse now so let's step into barrett fisher's video store barrett how you doing
1: i'm doing well thanks sam
0: barrett um i just told you before we started recording apocalypse now is one of it's one of my first favorite movies which is it's one of the first movies that i would identify as something more than entertaining that i that if somebody asked me what's a movie you love that i would say this is this is one and i haven't seen it in a while so i was a little nervous that this was going to be something that like maybe 22 24 year old me liked but as you know 20 years later do i still feel that way and i do i i just i was blown away watching this uh watching this again so i'm going to start by asking you as somebody who is a scholar of joseph conrad uh what was your what is your history with this film uh, maybe especially as a scholar of Conrad. I, I do want to, I, I will tell you, I reread The Darkness this week too, just because I thought if I'm going to talk with Barrett Fisher about Apocalypse Now, I probably have Joseph Conrad sort of recent.
1: Well, you know, it, it's fun, it's funny, Sam, when you say scholar of Joseph Conrad, I, I fell in love with Conrad in the ninth grade. So you know, I've been reading and appreciating Conrad for a long time. So when this film, When I first heard about the film being made, which, you know, they started filming in, what, 76? um, I was just a freshman in college, and by the time it came out, I was going into my senior year I was, I was in my senior year, uh, and I read a lot. I read a lot of Conrad by that point. I did a senior project on, on Conrad as, as an undergraduate, so I was excited about it because um, as a Conradian, I wanted to see what he was going to make of Heart of Darkness. Uh, and I was also excited about it because, of course, I, I knew Coppola uh, and because uh, of the Godfather films and the conversation. So I was also excited to see what would happen with kind of the um, the conjunction of those uh, those two talents. Um, as I've said uh, before in these broadcasts, I often have um, mixed feelings about adaptations. Uh, there's certain works of literature that I don't actually want to see adapted. Um, so, for example, I've never watched the, the 65 Peter O'Toole film of Laura Jim. Uh, I've just never never been able to face that. But there's something about Heart of Darkness that, for me, maybe because the the writing is so cinematic, um in 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 the the story uh that i was just i I was really curious to see what uh what 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 they made of it of course it also had the draw of martin sheen and and uh uh and marlon brando
0: so do you think when you think of apocalypse now do you think of this as a uh not it's definitely not a straight adaptation of heart of darkness uh because they changed the setting they uh Change quite a bit to to make this a Vietnam movie, but do you primarily think of Conrad when you think of this, or um, if you want to take this in another direction? I'm somebody who was born in 1977, so I was two year old two years old when this movie came out. Um, I did not live through any of the Vietnam War era. So, or do you think of this as a Vietnam movie?
1: That's an actually that's actually a very good question. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's a it's a like a 60 40 blend. Um, I, I think of it as probably sixty percent of Vietnam movie and forty percent of Joseph Conrad movie. But what is interesting about the film is that it gets more Conradian the deeper you get into it. Right by the by the time you get to Kurtz's compound, you're kind of really in the heart of the of the heart of darkness. But one thing I want to say about it as an adaptation is that when we looked at Citizen Kane last week, um, I was interested in Citizen Kane as a Kind of a reflection of the epistemology of Heart of Darkness. That is, the way that Conrad wrote the story as a, as a mystery of knowing, right? And, and the idea that Citizen Kane is basically um, about storytelling. It, it's, it's interested in Kane, but it's really more interested in how you try to find out about Kane. Whereas I think Heart of Dark, I think Apocalypse Now is a much more serious attempt at applying the themes of Heart of Darkness to the reality of of Vietnam. So what you get in Heart of Darkness, of course, is is the ivory trade uh, and the veneer of civilization that is kind of put over that enterprise, the free state of of the Congo, Belgian state of Congo. And in Heart of Darkness, or in Apocalypse Now, you get the Vietnam War. And so in both cases, you have these, um, these actions that in some way underlie support and at the same time kind of belie civilization. So the elephant, the ivory gets turned turned into piano keys and and cue balls, for example. Uh, And of course you have war that is supposed to help support uh, your civilization, but in order to commit acts of war you have to do things which are extremely uncivilized, which in many ways the film develops at much greater length at the end in the monologues uh, that uh, Willard has with Kurtz. So in some ways it actually extends and develops uh, some of the themes that Conrad um, that that are in Conrad, but he kind of leaves you to fill in some of the blanks.
0: Yeah, I will say, you know, as I mentioned, I read I read Heart of Darkness um, about. A couple days before i re this movie um and i have to give you credit or blame you for kind of blowing my mind to think about citizen kane through the lens of or in in conversation with heart of darkness and and even this film in conversation with citizen kane a little bit like you said i think it's it, I, I think you're right it is um pushing some of those themes more than kind of the uh, the mystery of knowing but uh i just i sort of felt citizen all over the place here so that was really that that, I, i appreciate that gift because this allowed me to read that book which i've read many times with a a little bit different lens to thinking about it and then to also to watch this movie you know thinking about the history of movies but also thinking about you know wells making i mean uh wells having his shot at a dream project first picked heart of darkness and in some ways this was I think Coppola dreamed about long before The Godfather. They were, they were planning this, he, not even for him to direct, but for American Zoetrope to make in 1968, and they just couldn't get all the pieces in place. So this was uh, a, definitely a passion project for, uh, for Coppola. And he put everything on the line financially. If this, if
1: this film had failed, he would have been, he would have been bankrupt. He, mor- he, got, he mortgaged himself and the company and his vineyard to the hilt
0: yeah i mean this was a this is a famously uh troubled production in every possible way a production can be troubled i think um the uh, i also in preparation for this rewatched the 1991 documentary of hearts of darkness the filmmaker's apocalypse which is a lot of eleanor coppola's footage because she was he had her film everything while they were making it and then she narrates the um, narrates the the footage and narrates the film. I mean, and this went through even the fact that the Willard character was not initially Martin Sheen; uh, right. it was Harvey Keitel, which <laughs> which they shot stuff with Keitel. I would love to. I'd be really interested. To, have you ever seen Harvey Keitel footage that they shot? No, I
1: don't know if it's I don't know if it's extant, or I, I don't know if they saved it or destroyed it or if it's ever been issued. So, I would yeah, I I'd agree. I would really like to
0: see it. And one of my one of my favorite. Uh, moments from that documentary it's actually the first thing that they show in the documentary and it's a little bit of probably director pompous director bs but it does sort of set up the documentary really well um and i think it gets into um some of the themes that that coppola wants to talk about in that film so i actually wrote what he says so he's at the Cannes film festival um, and again i don't take this i take all of this with a grain of salt but he says talking to the press he says my film is not a movie my film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It's what it was really like. It was crazy. And the way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little we went insane. <laughs> and I feel like the story of making this movie is or like the at least the documentary about it, like that really is the story. Like you you everybody is on a journey and maybe that's true for lots of films but this film because it was such a prolonged setting because of where they were they were in the philippines and a civil war was going on just south of them mm-hmm. um that i mean it wasn't their initial dream to film it on location. their initial dream was to film it on location in vietnam while the war was going on right um yeah. at least that's what john Milius wanted to do didn't <laughs> didn't seem like george lucas really interested in that but but i always thought that that was really interesting to sort of i mean again grain of salt idea to say how do we make uh how do we make a a movie real how do we make it true is to sort of say how can we create some of the same obstacles the movie or the people the world of the movie is wrestling with whether he intended to do that or not he did well you know it's it's a cliche
1: about vietnam right but vietnam was the first televised war so in a sense vietnam was already a movie uh is, is i think kind of the point he was trying to make so uh, you know i guess you could call it the great example of the imitative fallacy but i mean he there's a certain a lot there's a certain truth to what he's saying right that if you go <laughs> the jungle imposes such conditions on people that it's kind of hard for things not to go to go a little bit awry, it, it'd be pretty difficult to go into the jungle and have everything uh, kind of go perfectly. That's not the nature of the jungle, and of course, that's a big theme in *Heart of Darkness*, right? That once you, once you go into the jungle, things uh, things uh, you lose control over a lot of things, including yourself.
0: What's interesting about it, though, is that as I'm uh, as I'm thinking about other. You know, there's probably fifteen to twenty years of Vietnam War movies that come out after the Vietnam War. Um, if we think about *Heart of Darkness*, it's the least interested in some ways in like realism. Uh, well, realism is maybe not what I mean. Like, like because they he because he is doing *Heart of Darkness*, there is this sort of um, different story that he's telling. It's not it's not necessarily the like. Pl- I think of a movie like *Platoon* is trying to do something that feels a little bit more like here's what it was really like to be a sort of grunt in vietnam i mean there, there's lots of movies that are trying to do do different things i feel like this is this seems more i don't know if impressionistic is the right word or or what the um how to describe it but especially the deeper you get into the movie like you said the less this feels like this is a vietnam war movie and the more it feels like a a movie that's about the philosophy of war and the philosophy of civilization kind of
1: well, well you have you know you have um and one of one of the one of the kind of sub themes in um in our darkness is, is 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 nightmare right and the film has a kind of a nightmarish quality especially as they go up the river and you get those night scenes especially the scene of the bridge being being destroyed and then and then the, where it gets very from a from a realistic film perspective where it gets very strange is where it's most literally adapting of uh, the, the story. And that is when they're attacked by the spears, by, by the, the, the little arrows. And then Chief is actually killed with a spear. And they're taking that literally out of out of, out of, the, out of the novel. Um, and it's it's really an interesting moment. And I don't know, to be frank, what a viewer who has never read Heart of Darkness makes of that, because I look at that and I think, wow, it's only that way, because that's what Conrad said uh, in, in the story. I can't see how that actually fits with Vietnam at all. Um, but at the same time, it kind of works as part of this, uh, as part of this, um, kind of surrealistic atmosphere that it's creating.
0: Well, it also, it also, I think touches on something that Coppola talks about in the documentary where he, he, and and this is again, Conrad too, he envisions going up the river as going back in time. Right. So like, so you'd have to have chief killed. Like, I mean, that actually works too. Um, and one of the, the famous sequences and here's actually one of the things that I will say that documentary uh, pointed out to me. And I think subsequent uh, Coppola reissues of this movie did is that I think when I was in college, I didn't realize I knew that people had ideas about movies and that they then abandoned. I didn't realize that people filmed entire sequences of movies that were just <laughs> cut out. So exactly. I remember watching the the documentary and realizing there's this whole French plantation scene. And we talked about this at, the, this at the end of last episode. That's one of the things that gets re added in the sure. uh, Apocalypse Now Redux. And that also touches on the going back in time to like visit this French rubber plantation. And it's sort of this is colonial Vietnam, not, you know, sort of before America. Um, but it also blew my mind that they bothered to film this. It's a long sequence in the movie. Yeah. And then for 25 years, nobody ever saw it except the little clips in. Um, in the documentary. And then, you know, I think it, it turns out to be the right move to not have it in there, which is usually true. I think with a lot of these, a lot of these kind of cuts, but it's fascinating to, to have some more of those scenes in there to have this, more of this sense of this trip back in time.
1: Well, you know, part of the reason why the film took uh, two and a half years to edit is because of the amount of film that coupled a shot. And I think there's, I think there's 24 hours of raw footage. It's like a million and a half feet of film. So he just shot an enormous amount of, of material, which actually kind of, to make another connection to Orson Welles, um, Welles said that he thought the films were created in the editing room. Um, and so, so, mu- so much of, of making this film has to do with how it gets edited. And my understanding is we've actually got three versions now because after Redux, he also did a director's cut, which is kind of like in between Redux and the original release. So I guess there's less of the French scene i and i and there's a couple and i guess the uso girls show up again the playboy bunnies show up again um and it's interesting i read ebert and ebert said um because ebert loves this film uh, as you know it's one of his great movies um but ebert said he he doesn't really care which version he'll 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 take any of them so
0: yeah and I, i will say i i i love the original theatrical release but there i will circle back and watch redux again just to sort of see like oh i'm kind of interested in what are the ideas that he talks about there because actually one of the other things that's that sets up nicely with the way this film is is the story is told is that you have these sort of distinct sequences that you could almost lift out i mean there 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 are chapters it's like reading a book i mean there there are chapters there are episodes in this you know so you have like the you have the Initial stuff in Saigon before he goes. Yeah. Then you have Kilgore is like its own mini movie, you know, with Robert Duvall. I mean, I, it's a great. It, it, one of the interesting things about about this movie too is it's gorgeous to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but each one of those episodes even looks different. The French plant, plantation looks different than Kilgore. Looks different than Kurtz's compound. Looks different than uh, the bridge at Doolong. Like they're they all they all are like this separate little. Okay, now we're gonna do this thing and it's gonna look different. And with things like the the Kilgore sequence with the Air Cavalry, I mean, that's some of the, the more famous scenes you see with the Wagner playing. And um, it's this fantastic, and I think this isn't hard to do in war movies, but he does a great job of it, is like, it's this sort of ballet with helicopters. It's gorgeous Ooh. to look at. It's spectacular. It's a great action sequence. And it's also horrifying. You know, yes. when you when, like when you're thinking about what's happening and you're listening to what, you know kilgore saying about wanting to hold this point so they can surf and it's and it's just like it's he does such a good job of making this thing i want to look at but i don't want to look at
1: and and and, and i think t- to me that's that's one of the ways sam in which the in which the film transmutes the story in a really interesting way um first of all i'll note that kilgore has a great dr strangelove name actually but you know it, you know Kilgore's um, uh, counterpart in the story is is the station manager, right? The guy whose health somehow he seems to be able to resist all the diseases and all the the tropical ailments that le- that that kill lesser men, and that's Kilgore. He can stand there in the midst of the battle, and and Willard says about it, all those people just kind of get doesn't get touched. And then the other element you have in 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 the film in, in the story rather is trying to maintain. The um, the veneer of civilization, you know, the the guy that has the full suit on, and you know, he's he's trying to be act as though he's actually still back in England, even though he's in Africa. And to me, that's what the surfing stands in for, right? That you've you you've got this, you know, quintessential kind of California uh, cultural activity, and and we're going to do this here, even as though we're not in the middle of a war zone. So that's to me where, if you were to ask where the film is most successful as an adaptation. To me, that's where it works brilliantly, because what it does is it takes one art form and one way of expressing something, and it translates it seamlessly into another, another art form. Um, and that, so that, that's why, to me, that, that is, that's, the Kilgore episode is probably, to me, one of the really strongest of the film. Uh, because it also captures, as you said, it also captures the horror of actually what's, what's happening.
0: Uh, do you have favorite sequences in this? I mean, if, if this is a, uh, a if it does have chapters to it, are there particular chapters that stand out to you?
1: Well, yeah, certainly I would say that that one, the, the Kilgore one. Um I I I actually love the opening of the film. Um because well, this is an idea I had, and then I found a couple critics that agreed with me, so I know it's not entirely crazy. It voiceover immediately evokes film noir for me. Right, takes me out of the past and as you probably know the voiceover wasn't added until a year afterwards And in fact, it's not even Martin Sheen doing the voiceover. It's his brother uh, You're kidding me. No, they couldn't get Sheen at least if, if it's a reliable source that I that I found Sam I was told that Martin Sheen was not available and it's his brother and in fact His brother is a stand-in for a couple scenes when Sheen wasn't able to, to act for whatever reason, but that well, opening, she has
0: a heart attack in this movie yeah, too. Has a heart uh, part of it.
1: But, you know, as you as you know, in, in that opening scene, he truly is drunk. Um, he truly cuts his thumb on on that mirror. But what I find interesting is that in some ways, um, that dialogue, which it's interesting that after after Coppola shot the film, he realized he needed the dialogue in order to help people make sense of what was going on inside Willard's head, and and that to me is. So that opening sequence, when you feel like you're actually in the head of some kind of Raymond Chandler character, I really love that. And he brought in Michael Hare to write that sequence. Michael Hare is best known for his Vietnam memoir, Dispatches. And by the way, Michael Hare co-wrote Kubrick's uh, Full Metal Jacket uh, later on in 87. But anyway, and, and then one of the things I noticed this time is I did not realize that as in Citizen Kane, the opening and the closing shots of the film were almost identical. Because the opening shot is, well, Willard's head is upside down next to the face of the idol. And that's the closing shot, although his face is now right side up next to the idol. So I just love the way the opening kind of sets up. Uh, and, and it's another way in which the film mimics the structure of Heart of Darkness, which opens and closes with uh, the narration of, of Marlowe in England.
0: I uh, I can't believe, and I will say I did less reading about this movie because I because I'm familiar with it. So I was like, well, I I'm going to just kind of go into the conversation with it. I can't believe that the narration was added later, that that was not initially planned. Cause it's narration's Also one of the things that when, when people talk about films, they're like, well, that's actually usually a crutch. If you can't, add, if you can't right. um, tell the story, then you add that in. But this is, this is one of the counter examples to that, to me where it's like, well, the narration is so perfect in it. Cause you need to be in Kurt's or you need to be in uh, Willard's head. As you're, as he's going through these things, because Willard's not going to talk to people about what's happening, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you need to read along with Willard. So there's all these interesting shots of Willard sitting in the boat, going through, uh, you know, going through files while the everybody else on the boat is, you know. Doing whatever you know kind of joking around and he's sitting there reading the history of, of of kurtz so that that kind of blows uh blows my mind um thing about the opening sequence in the hotel room one of the things that and again maybe this is more common but but because i didn't know a lot about this when i first encountered especially the documentary is i didn't realize how much of this film was um either improvised or was really created in the moment so like that scene like you said they it was the it was something that they were shooting, but Sheen was really drunk, and he basically had some demons he wanted to work out. and Coppola was just like, okay, just keep filming. just let this sort of happen. same with the um with the incident where they where they take a where they take the the boat and they they search the boat and end up shooting up the boat. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. that was that came from the actors on the boat saying coppola was basically is there anything you guys need to experience and they all said well we want to have something like my lie like where we go in like like where we go over um so that was that was brought you know by by the actors in that way and then you get all the kirk's compound stuff where um they they go into long depth with this where uh brando just coppola doesn't know how to end the movie and he realizes he has three weeks with Brando, so he could either sit and try to write stuff or just film Brando for three weeks and, again, make it in the editing room. So right. a lot of that stuff, which when you're watching the documentary, you think, how is this ever going to fit together? But then you watch the movie, and I feel like I'm, I find those deeply compelling. I find Brando great in this movie. I really am. I think he does a great job of embodying that character. Of I understand why someone would be drawn to him um, and w- even why why Willard sort of is both drawn to him and horrified by him simultaneously.
1: <laughs> I remember you know you ask about my, me as a Conrad scholar. I remember reading an interview with Brando uh, right about the time the film came out, and uh, you know Brando had had evidently, and this surprised Coppola. Brando had never Brando had never read *Heart of Darkness*, and so that was one of the things that he did on on, on the set. And I remember. Um, I remember reading that Brando interpreted Kurtz as a man suffering from enormous guilt. Um, I mean, that was his interpretation of Heart of Darkness. I remember thinking, no, no, that's not right at all. That's not what's going on with Kurtz. He's not, he's not guilty, that's not the issue at all. Um, but somehow I think he, he makes him a very, um, he, I agree, he, he makes him a, a compelling character and actually in some respects more of a character than he is in, in, in the novel. Uh, or the novella, because then that's, that's part of the issue. Like with the novella, what Conrad's able to do is by the time you get there, it's not so much who Kurtz is, but what Marlow has become. Mm-hmm. And you get that in the film, obviously. I mean, Will, Willard has some really interesting things he says um, about uh, about his relationship to, to, to Kurtz. He says, for example, at one point, I was free, but he knew I wasn't going anywhere. He knew more about what I was going to do than I did. So the film does that. Uh, but it also interesting enough, does a lot more with with Kurtz uh, in terms of you know what is this actual philosophy that uh, that Kurtz is expressing. And some people have criticized Conrad because um, you know what is it? You know, Ian it says something that the cask of his genius holds not a jewel, but a vapor. right The idea that it's you know that Conrad builds up these ideas, but he never really tells you exactly what the ideas are. I simply, I have, to ha- I simply, I have to see that as a strength, not a weakness. But that's because I'm a Conradian. But with the film, you know, you have Kurt saying things like uh, he wants men who are moral and at the same time able to utilize their primordial, primordial instinct to kill without fear, without passion, without judgment, because it's judgment that defeats us. So what's interesting to me about that is, whereas Conrad sets up a kind of um, a kind of a dichotomy. Or, or, or a kind of a, you know, where you have uh, that which is atavistic and that which is civilized and they're a dichotomy and you can have civilization as a kind of veneer over atavism, but ultimately you are fundamentally savage. Um, whereas what the Kurtz character in the film is saying is, I think you can actually kind of unite the two. I think you can be civilized and savage at the same time. Uh, that's why he admires the people who have chopped off the arms of those who were inoculated uh, with polio, because they've done something entirely savage, entirely um, uh, awful and hor- horrible, but they've done it out of a sense of principle. So he, so he's trying to figure out, and, and, and what he's running up against, I think, is the essential um, illogicality of war. You know that 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 you're waging war, but then there actually are kind of rules as to how you do it. And I think that's sort of what's driven him insane, the notion that you have rules of war, uh, it, because war is fundamentally um, chaotic, and yet you have to have ways to do it p- appropriately. And I think that's that, to me, is the moral, the ethical, the philosophical dilemma that he's, he's wrestling with and what sends around the bend.
0: Speaking of the Kurtz scenes, uh, since I'm talking to a literature professor, I have to point out that there's a lot of T.S. Eliot in this movie. Kurtz is reading The Hollow Men. I think that... Um, the Dennis Hopper character quotes from proof rock yeah. he talks about, I should have been a clause scuttling across the it ocean floor. Clause, yes. Yeah. So um, which is interesting because the hollow men, the, the the epigraph to the hollow men starts with a quote from heart of darkness. Yes. So it's that the, seems it's the current he did. Yeah. Yes. So uh, can you talk about the TS Elliot of it all yeah. <laughs> or what, what Elliot has to do with this?
1: yeah well, you know first of all it it's great that it's Elliot because Elliot is one of my favorite poets. So we've got both one of my favorite novelists, sort uh, story writers, and favorite poets uh, and a, and, a, and a really a film I really love as well i I think that one of the reasons why Elliot is really important uh, to a war film is that, with the exception of Prufrock, um the other the other um aspects of Elliot that are are quoted or referred to, including not only The Hollow Men, but also The Wasteland. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Uh, we get that quoted as well. That's uh, from The Hollow Men as well. Yeah, that's right. It's the uh, end of The Hollow Men. That's right, the end of The Hollow Men. Sorry. Um, anyway, oh, I, I'm sorry, the, 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 the Wasteland reference I was thinking of is the is the books on um, on Kurtz's show. Oh, uh, The Golden Bow. And yeah. The Golden Bough, and, and then the other one as well is also uh, From Ritual to Romance um those are influences on the wasteland so the, the wasteland and the hollow man are both post world war I films i mean uh, poems so one of the, one of the things that eliot like others of his generation are, are reflecting on is the damage that world war 1 has done to to civilization um, so i think in in that sense the kind of um and and and, 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 and there were you know world war 1 was the war to end all wars uh, it was considered apocalyptic. Uh, it was of course followed by, an infl- by a global pandemic. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which I think it makes sense even though um, Eliot comes after Conrad, there's many ways in which Conrad's view of where civilization was headed was kind of prophetic of what actually happened in World, in world War I. That you know, there were people who thought that you know, uh, civilization was getting better, better and better that things just improving thanks to technology, and World War One comes along and demonstrates how wonderful technology is for doing all kinds of incredibly destructive things. So, in a sense, that's that that kind of uh, that kind of atavism which Conrad saw in in the Congo kind of comes back uh, with renewed force in World War One, and then you've got Elliot kind of reflecting on that, but also reflecting on the notion that um, the Hollow Man, right? That there there is there's nothing inside. These people—they don't have any morals. They don't have any ethics. They don't have any principles. Uh, And that's the one of the things that Kurtz is kind of struggling with, right? Kurtz is trying to figure out: Can I be a hollow man without being a hollow man? Uh, You know, can I behave in ways that are fundamentally uncivilized, but at the same time not lose uh, the elements of civilization?
0: Um, One other thing I want to talk with—actually, a couple of things I want to talk with you about. But but we have—we've talked a little bit about the cast of this movie. Um, I think this movie has some great performances. Um, so I'm just sort of uh, want to hear your thoughts on, uh, on the selection of Martin Sheen, who, again, was not the first choice for this movie. Um, but how do you feel about Sheen as Willard or as the, the Marlowe stand-in?
1: Well, it's, it, it, it's interesting that one of the reasons why Coppola rejected Keitel was he didn't feel that Keitel was um, kind of passive enough I mean, the, the, you know, there, there, there's a kind of passivity about Marlowe, um, but it's almost the passivity of a tiger waiting to spring, right? The the, the the way he suddenly does spring into action, and you realize this this guy's he's pretty hard, but at the same time, he conveys a certain kind of, uh, I don't know if softness is the right word, but a, a certain kind of active passivity. And I think Sheen does a great job. He's got extraordinarily expressive face, there's expressive eyes, and he does. I think he does a wonderful job of watching what's going on, and you're never quite sure. He, he looks both like a spectator and a participant at the same time. You you know you catch those scenes where you see him watching somebody like Kilgore or watching the other the other the other soldiers, and I think he's I think he was perfect for the role. And he's got this kind of coiled energy, but he doesn't expend it until it's absolutely necessary.
0: Um, I also think it's interesting thinking about Martin Sheen later. I mean, I think about the roles that, that define him later, uh, you know, the, something like the, the playing the president on the West wing and, um, or, or, you know, he often plays a, uh even like a movie like the American president, which the West wing is, is loosely based on, right? Like he's the, he's the, the right hand man to the president. And is this, and you know, or, or in wall street, he's Charlie Sheen's father. And it's just like this sort of like, they're all like these sort of morally rooted people, which is interesting. Like I bring that in a positive way. I bring that baggage to, uh, to Willard a little bit too, that I think about like, like how does Willard come back from this experience? Cause that's, I think one of the questions that the movie asks um you know like like when they start to go back down the river like like what what's going to happen to to Willard so it's interesting to think about the other baggage i the other um baggage of of sheen that i bring with me uh, to but this see, my,
1: my sheen is different from your sheen because because my sheen in 1979 is the Martin sheen who was in Badlands with Sissy Spacek so you know that kind of Bonnie and Clyde couple that mm-hmm. kind of outlaw and so to me sheen had a ha, has much more in 79 has much more of a kind of dangerous edge interesting uh, so to me i think that's what really works for me is is that is that he's got a he, he looks like a nice guy but he's he may not be right? so yeah there's much more menace for my it's it, for the in the young sheen for me than there is for the the older sheen
0: well, that's exactly right but but i guess what i'm saying is when i look at the older sheen this is an advantage of this movie as i always look at this guy it's like maybe there's more to this person than he's letting yeah. on because he's always the person who goes up the river to me you know <laughs> it, it, it basically shaped my viewing of him going forward and i didn't really have anything any experience with him uh, prior to that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i will also say this movie has I think it's amazing casting and a great performance by Dennis Hopper. Somebody I don't necessarily think of as an right. as an actor that I have a lot of affinity for, but he is perfect for the role that he plays. I think,
1: and I think it's another example of the film translating a character from the story. That character, the Harlequin. Uh, I mean, so, some of his lines are are literally you know out of, out of out of the uh, out of the the story. Um, and I think as far as I know, he's talked about some there being a certain amount of impro- improvisation in the film. I think it, I think he stuck in the lines from Um uh, I think that was that was his idea. So so the idea to, to make him in a photojournalist and some of those cameras were actual cameras that had been used by one of the cameramen in, who had done photojournalism in Vietnam. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought, I think he does a great job of um, Capturing a certain kind of, he's a certain kind of a hollow man, a certain kind of a menace to his, to his character. Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, one other sort of main cast person. And then I, and then I, I want to ask you about sort of secondary characters that you find interesting. And this is actually kind of a secondary character, but I just need to point out that the very young Lawrence Fishburne in this movie, which when they first started, he was 14 years 14. old. If, if the movies to be uh, the documentaries to be believed, sure. um, which is actually great because in the movie he's 17, but even 17 is too young to be fighting in Vietnam. So, so like you get, uh, you know, when you think about the the, the guys on the boat, uh, you get the, the the character of Clean is is I think an important character to have there, um, and I think Fishburne's really great in it. And it's
1: a that's one of the most gut wrenching scenes in the film. You asked me about you know favorite se- sequences, but the recording of his mother uh, as as he's as he lies lies there dead. It's also uh, at the time in his career when he was still being billed as Larry Fishburne. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the last time a trivia trivia note: the last time he was Larry Fishburne, I believe, was Boys in the Hood in '91, and after that he was Lawrence Fishburne. So another another actor whose stature has kind of changed as he's got. Yeah, over.
0: yeah, it's interesting. I, I heard it, an interview with Quentin Tarantino, and he's he thinks Fishburne is like one of the the actors who. He didn't say that his like didn't have the career he should have, but sort of like he he's actually who who Tarantino wanted for a lot of those Samuel Jackson parts, um, especially in Pulp Fiction. So like he loves Lawrence Fishburne. Um, How about are there smaller uh, performances, smaller characters that you're interested in or drawn to in this movie? Because I have a couple.
1: Well, I really um, I really like um, uh, Chief. Uh, Trying to remember, trying to remember the Albert Hall yeah Robert Hall. I, yeah, Albert I don't Hall. Know what else I may have seen him in. I th- think he's one of those guys that often is, you know, a, a smaller part. but I really like Chief. Um I really like Frederick Forrest uh, as chef. Um I thought he I thought he was really, really quite good. and uh, and then Sam Bottoms uh, as Lance.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, i i the the chef the chef scene with the Tiger is. Yeah is one of the the great and it also lays out sort of this important idea that the movie's going to wrestle with which is you know do you get out of the boat you know never get out of the boat unless you're willing to go all the way right right yeah i i will i want to point out uh three other people in the movie just that i i thought were really interesting um uh apparently arlie Ermy, who has a central role in um full metal jacket is one of the uh the helicopter pilots in this yeah I, uh, that I, was interesting that there's dna between those movies yeah
1: i knew that going in and i forgot to look for them and i missed them.
0: so um another sort of video store callback uh one of the playboy playmates is colleen camp who plays tracy flick's mother
1: oh now that's a good one i didn't spot that at all
0: yeah, I, I only knew that because, like I, I said in the election episode, Culling Camp is my aunt's agent, so I'm aware of movies that she's in. So I was like, oh, yeah, she's in this too. And then I will say the character that I am most, and I think this is this is maybe the most Heart of Darkness-y thing uh, that I could say, but the character that I'm most terrified of um, is uh, played by Jerry Zeismer. He doesn't have a name. He's right. the guy in the briefing at the beginning who's wearing the suit. Yes. And he, he almost doesn't, and I, and he has like one of the classic lines cause he, he gets the line. Uh, the only thing he says is terminate with extreme prejudice. But even yep. before he says that, that's the most menacing haunting person. And it's the bureaucrat. It's the politician. Yes. Uh, I presume that's what he is. Cause he's not in army, an army dress, but the, uh, the addition to him in that scene, and this is a scene that has also has Harrison, young Harrison Ford in it, but I'm constantly drawn to and terrified by the guy in the, in the suit. <laughs>
1: and he actually was—I uh, think on *Apocalypse Now*, he was the assistant director, as, mm-hmm. uh, as I recall. It's interesting. I—I I did not remember that that line is actually only said twice in that scene, and you—and you, and you never—you don't get that line again. So, yeah. But, but you're right. He—he is—he has a menacing look about him. So, and that—that that whole debriefing scene, or or whatever you want to call that scene, is that—that's also a fascinating one too, where they. You know they asked uh Willard at the beginning about the missions he's been on and i mean i am assuming it's a test right that if he if he tells him he's been on those missions and he's not they're not the man he he's not the man they want for this mission so
0: right right yeah, yeah. um I will say uh of two other things, and then I'll throw you my last question and then we can kind of see what anything else you want to talk about uh a scene that I was this time around was one of my absolute fra- favorites was the dulong bridge scene mm-hmm. um for one thing it's gorgeous to look at it's it's in the dark and i just love the um you know at this point they've if we're thinking about going back in time this is when we've gone past any sense of civilization there is no this is chaos right and he keeps looking around saying who's the co and the you know the the he gets two answers to it um that are really he gets a couple answers but two that are most interesting are um the the one guy who's at 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 the machine gun and he turns to him and says I thought it was you (laughs) or aren't you the aren't you the commanding officer because he's a he's a captain there and then the other is the guy who has the mortar rifle thing and Mm. the guy says do you know who's in charge here and he just says yes (laughs) and it's like there is something just deeply haunting about about that scene so i'll say that's a that's a favorite uh a favorite scene of mine this time around um One movie that we watched already that I thought of a lot uh, as I as I watched this and got to the end was interestingly was Let the Right One In. Oh, just because thinking about you know who are the monsters, uh, I think this question is is or this movie is asking that question a lot. You know that you know you look at the um, I don't remember her name, but you look at the the girl in uh, Let the Right One In, and she is clearly a monster by definition. But we see that this movie is actually pointing to saying, well, actually, these other people are the monsters, too. And 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 I think this question is sort of asking, like, who are, what is civilization? Who are the savages? Who are the monsters? And I think I, when I was listening to Kurt's talk, I thought a lot about, I was interested in how Kurt would watch Let the Right One In, what he would have to say about that movie. So that one, that sort of jumped to mind. So my last question for you, uh, before I just, anything else you want to say is, um, again, Famous last words in Heart of Darkness and in this, uh, the, the line, the horror, the horror. Uh, anything you want to say about that as a, uh, yeah, meanings or, or interpretations?
1: Well, yeah, you know, the, that's kind of the, that's, that's the real issue of both the, the film and, and the story, which is what does the horror the horror actually mean, right? And in the story, it's important for Marlowe to see it as an affirmation. That to, to see the, to, to, for Kurtz to say the horror of the horror is some kind of acknowledgement, as, as Marlowe says, he'd step back from the brink. Um, but it's also a kind of, a, in a sense, it's more about what it needs to mean for Marlowe than it means for Kurtz, right? Marlowe needs to believe that Kurtz has somehow maintained some kind of civilization, uh, some kind of civilized values. In, in, in the in the case of the film, it's a little bit different because um, the Kurtz characters told us in the film that you need to make a friend of horror um, because if horror is not a friend, then it's an enemy. So there's so the, there's a different kind of ambiguity in his last words because you don't really have Willard. It, Willard doesn't attempt to interpret it for us. We're we're left to interpret it as the audience. So then we have to say as we watch Kurtz die, when he says the horror the horror, is he embracing it or is he drawing back from it? Uh, and the film doesn't answer it for us. The kind of, the film le- leaves it up to us to, to decide. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's where the film is different than the book, because the book, we get more of Marlowe post Kurtz, you know,
1: right, and he- right, right. and we have Marlow going back to talk to quote the intended, uh, and, uh, you know, and, yeah, and trying to kind of rescue the memory. Uh, but there's no there's no effort to do that in, in in the film. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't I don't see how the film could have right The film couldn't have taken Willard back to the to to. I mean you have, you have Kurtz asking him to tell to give him to send a message to his son, which mm-hmm. is you know that corresponds for Marlo going to the intended. But um, I don't think Coppola ever thought of filming anything like that, and that would have been a very bad decision.
0: Right, because because in the book we already see. Marlowe post Kurtz at the very beginning because it's because yeah. it's this flashback. This then lets us to ask like, has, has Willard stepped back from the brink? Like, like how does Will what does Will the rest of Willard's life look like? Like I, I think yeah, it. it when
1: Willard, when, yeah, when Willard says I'm not even in their army anymore, I'm 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 not exactly sure what that means. Uh yeah. that that could that could actually set up the other ending, <laughs> right? You right. know, so, yeah.
0: Uh so Anything else you want to talk about with this film?
1: Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little disappointed, Sam, because this was the one movie where I had a good answer for you and didn't ask me about my history with it. I mean, you did in a sense, right? Yes. Uh, I wanted, uh, you didn't ask about the history of actually seeing it for the first time. So, the uh, film was released in October of 79. I, mean, I was reminiscing with my wife because I remember we saw it together, which is an important part of my memory of it. So, I think been, I would have been home on college from college on uh, Thanksgiving break. Uh, so November of 79, as Amy uh, and I went from Maine to Connecticut, where my mom lived, and my strongest memory of this film is standing in the kitchen, in my mom's kitchen afterwards, with Amy sobbing uh, in my arms because she had found the film so distressing. Hmm. Uh, and it was in particular the slaughter of the buffalo. Um you know she just found that overwhelmingly uh traumatizing so to me watching this film is always is inextricably intertwined with a very powerful memory of watching it with my which my with my wife which by the way is also going to be part of the film we're going to do next week which we'll talk about in a minute i also have a very strong memory of watching that with my wife um but the two endings the ending i believe i saw in 79 was the ending in which the compound's blown up uh, and it was interesting to me, that was the ending I was expecting. Hmm. I wasn't expecting this ending, which is, you know, there's no credits in the film, although he was legally obligated to have the title somewhere, so Apocalypse Now is scrolled on the wall of the temple, uh, which was Milius' reworking of the hippiest phrase, Nirvana Now, from the 60s. Um, but, and, then, and then it just goes to American Zoetro production, and that's it. But when I saw it in 79, he radios in uh, the the uh, the air raid, and the film ended oh, really? compound being being blown up, so that's the way the film always ended for me. So when I watched it a couple of days ago, and he just quietly motors away, I like that ending a lot better uh, than the other one. So, uh, but but I know that as you said, Coppola earlier, Coppola struggled. You know, he struggled a bit with the ending, and he always said, "No, no, I I, I meant you know what to do with the credits." Um, but I just. <laughs> i think it was a lot more than that yeah
0: yeah uh that's fascinating that your your initial experience with the film because i've i mean i've only seen this ending so that's that's really interesting uh so what do you have for us for next week
1: okay so I'm, i'm i'm continuing this theme of let's watch movies that influenced each other or draw on the same source uh, and so I think what I have to do to follow, following apocalypse now is we got to go back to 1972, uh, and watch Vera Herzog's Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Um, just, that's a film that, our, well, a couple reasons. Coppola cited it as an influence on the look of, of apocalypse now. And it's a film and a director that I have a particularly, um, fond, uh, relationship with. So, um. Aguirre: The Wrath of God is, uh, and that's A G U I R R E for those who aren't aware. Aguirre: The Wrath of God, uh, another film uh, on location with lots of lots of struggles.
0: Well, I'm excited because I have never heard of this movie. I don't know anything about it. Actually, the only, the first time I heard of it. I have to say it was right before recording. I was looking at the Wikipedia page for Apocalypse Now and it's I, it was one of the things that was hyperlinked on the page and I was like, oh, I've never heard of that movie. And then that's what we're watching. So that's uh that's very exciting. I I can't wait. I have no idea what it's about, and that's exactly where I wanna be uh wanna be with this. So Barrett, thank you so much for um recommending this film, um, for talking me through it for talking about uh Joseph Conrad, I will say Uh, you and I have, we've never actually taught together, although I was a TA, uh, for a course that you taught, um, uh, Christianity, Christianity, Western culture back in the nineties. And, um, I've been part of this course for, uh, 30 or 25 years at this point. And. Um, if you were, if someone were to ask me to list the top five lectures I've ever heard in this course, um, you did one on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, where you talked about Freud, Nietzsche, Darwin, and Marx. And it's one of the, one of the great lectures I've ever heard uh, in the history of that course. And I've heard a lot of lectures in that class. So that, that I do mean that as true praise. So I'm always excited to talk uh, to Conrad with you uh, to talk about this film, which is one of my favorites. We will be back next week to talk about Agiri, the wrath of God in the video story.